We've got another round of tech layoffs and, of course, the latest drama in the banking industry. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. How are you? <laughs> it's Monday. <laughs> I'm doing uh, well. How are you? <laughs> I, I, I'm fine. I'm I'm uh, I'm just sort of uh, smiling audibly because we are back where we were a week ago today, which is the situation is fluid, and banking continues to dominate the investing headlines, and this time it is overseas where the big story is Credit Suisse is being acquired by UBS. In a deal worth $3.2 billion. Uh, the deal reportedly orchestrated by the Swiss central bank, Swiss regulators. And this is, for a lot of reasons, um, these are two banks that we don't pay a ton of attention to. But because of the size of the deal, because of the influence, because a lot of investors just sort of woke up to this news Monday morning. Naturally, one of the questions is what ripple effects, if any, come from this? As you watch this playing out across the sea, what goes through your mind? Definitely, you know, we, we've spent the last couple of weeks assessing sort of the situation here domestically, watching sort of the ripple effects of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and Signature to a lesser extent. And you know, wondering to ourselves, is is this something that is contained just to to our banking system here? Is this something that's just contained to a couple of of banks that that perhaps were overexposed to a certain asset class, weren't prepared to deal with certain macroeconomic conditions, and and, and now. You know, we're seeing this becoming sort of a a global. I don't want to say contagion, but I mean, we do see this obviously spreading more on a global global scale. And it's it's not to say that it's not to say this is <laughs> this is the beginning of the end, but but it is. It, you know, we're watching sort of a train wreck in slow motion, and and that that stinks uh, as as investors because um, you you don't really know when this is going to conclude. You don't really know what the ultimate solution is. Um, and, and there are a lot of a lot of external forces at play that really kind of go into this. I mean, at the end of the day, right? Every move that banking regulators make and have made over the past couple of weeks is to shore up balance sheets and, and ultimately instill confidence, right? And yet, the more they try to help, the less confident investors <laughs> become, right? Because it's it's a tacit admission that. Damn it! There's something wrong. <laughs> we did something wrong, and now we're dealing with some some unintended consequences. And so it, it really, again, it goes to show. We talked about the psychology before when it comes to investing. And I mean, I feel like just over the past few weeks, we're really seeing that psychology uh, playing out here because you know, fundamentals of, of of business are one thing, right? I mean, we we look at metrics that matter uh, and just general fundamentals. Of of the business, but there is when you're talking about markets, there is a psychology at play, and it, it, it there are times when, when you sort of you know you, you've opened up Pandora's box and it's impossible to get things back in. So I, I I'm I'm not certain that there are any moves that regulators can make at this point that will that will 
fully reinstill confidence in the sector. I do appreciate the fact that they continue to be um, seemingly on this. I like the fact that they're trying to work within the industry so that this is sort of a an, an industry solution as opposed to a government solution, although I think it's fair to say that government is really kind of pushing for that as optics really matter. Um, but but yeah, it, it it feels like, well, hey, listen, it's Monday and we should expect another another fresh headline tomorrow telling us telling us something new. <laughs> well, and you just touched on something that um Look, over the years, as we've been doing this podcast, you and I have talked a number of times about uh, Company X and something going on with Company X, whatever the industry is. And part of our conversation is, uh, this is this is kind of a headline risk. This isn't uh, whatever's going on, whatever this challenge is, it's more headlines than affecting the fundamental underlying business. And that's of some relief. But we also talk about the fact that it's like, ah, but it's something that the CEO and and um, their management team need to spend time on, and that and as an investor, you don't want to see that. You want to see the management team focused on the business, growing the business, et cetera, et cetera. And you just touched on something, Jason, that I think is a cousin to that, which is that every company in America has spent time over the last two weeks talking about their banking. Even if they are very confident in what they've been doing up to that point, every company in America has had the conversation, wait a minute, let's take a few minutes here. Are we good? Is our cash in a, like, are, are, do we, let's have an emergency board meeting. Or, a, you know, if it's a smaller company and they don't have a board, an emergency management meeting. Can we just spend time talking about this thing? And I think that's part of the challenge here. And as you said, there's 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 not going to be a bell that gets rung at the end of this to say it's all over now. It's just going to be at some point in the future we're going to look back as investors and say, hey, you know what? Over the last few months, we didn't really talk about banking. We didn't really talk about um, banks and liquidity and balance sheets. And uh, it, it it seems like confidence has been restored to its previous level. And we're only going to know that when it's in the rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, when you look at, at something like a Credit Suisse versus USB situation, um, it you had two different cultures, right? I mean, clearly, USB seemed to be the more conservative of the two. Whereas, I mean, Credit Suisse has, has a bit of a, a bit of a track record for mismanagement and, and, and crises, so to speak. So, you know, maybe maybe the merging of these two will ultimately create um, a, a, a better a better entity going forward. But but I I, I do think that's right. I mean, you, you should have at least. I mean, every bank. I, I would hope that every financial institution out there has, has convened a meeting at some point here to do what you just said. Right? Are we good? Is our balance sheet okay? Let's look at our investment portfolio. Um, because I'd imagine, uh, you know, the past few years, it's kind of been cruise control for a lot of organizations, not just in banking, but I mean, generally speaking, investing. Investing was pretty easy over these last few years, right? You could throw a dart and pretty much make money, and and that's just not going to be the case anymore. I mean, clearly, we're going to need to focus a little bit more on the fundamentals. And and I think to your point on a finish line, no, there isn't going to be a finish line. You need to look for signs um, that that maybe things are better or better than than even we think. I mean, you know, you look to that uh, that that lending facility that was recently created by regulators for. 
uh, for for the banking situation here, right? For for banks to be able to tap that lending facility to shore up balance sheets in case depositors were feeling um, anxious. Um, in case there were some questions in regard to their exposure versus their depositors, it sort of help protect them against against a run. There are signs, at least, that that facility, while it is being while it's being used, um, I was reading last night, a lot of the money that is being that is being pulled from that facility is is very tied to the West Coast situation, right? Banks like Silicon Valley Bank um, that have that have been overexposed to to this sort of start, startup and VC. Um, uh, VC uh, demographics, so uh, maybe that's a sign that things aren't necessarily as widespread as as they they could be. Uh, but again, yeah, it, it's not a finish line. It ultimately is just looking for the signs that that uh, things are either recovering or perhaps not as bad as 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 they uh, are, are being reported today. But but yeah, it, it feels like we still got a ways to go before we ultimately learn that. Uh, before we move on to the next topic, I just want to correct one thing you said, because I think you misspoke when you um, said that the acquiring bank, um, the acquiring bank is UBS. Oh, did um, I say USB? US, my bad. You said yeah. USB, and at least a couple of the list, dozens of listeners um, who are US Bank Corp uh, shareholders <laughs> uh, panicked. Um, so I just, I just want to put their minds at ease. Misspoke, and thank you for the correction. It happens. <laughs> Before I let you go, Amazon announced another round of layoffs uh, 9,000 employees. This is on top of the 18,000. We talked back in January when. Uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and other major tech companies were announcing layoffs, and I believe Amazon was the one uh, that we said, I'm pretty sure more rounds are coming. And that was based in large part on just how many employees they have, because on a percentage basis, I think it was at the time it was something like 1% or maybe even less than that. But, um, you know, as expected, um, another round, which is obviously hard for the people who are losing their jobs. In terms of the underlying business and sort of where Andy Jassy goes from here, I think it's fair to ask, and I say this as a longtime Amazon shareholder, I think it is fair to ask, how many more of these are you going to do before you feel like you've got it right? Because uh, this seems like the opposite of ripping off the Band-Aid. Yeah, I think, I mean, I certainly understand from the perspective of a leader wanting to be slower and more methodical than doing this, right? I, I think, I mean, it, you have to believe that from any perspective, job cuts just stink. I mean, you don't want to do it as a leader. You hate it if you're the employee getting cut. I mean, the only people who can really perhaps appreciate it would be would be investors, and that just is if if it really. I mean, this is something that the business needs, and and I think what we're seeing more and more is in a lot of cases, a lot of a lot of businesses really need this, right? I mean, there was just there's just a level of bloat that that we're seeing a lot of these businesses start starting to to trim away, and so from the investing perspective, that obviously makes sense. I would think that that most leaders would want to try to 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 let go as of of as few people as possible, so maybe that's why we see this just coming in stages, and and also when you look at a business like Amazon with so many different parts of the business, right? I mean, it's not just Amazon, this online retailer. I mean, you've got all of these different dynamics, and these job cuts seem to be tilted more towards the AWS, the advertising, the Twitch side of, of Amazon's business. Um, and, and so, whether we see more coming down the pike or not is, is still up for debate. My, my bet is we probably do. Um, but, but I mean, it, if you look at 
where Amazon stands today versus where it was back in 2019 in regard to employees and revenue. I mean, you know, one of the metrics we like to just look at just just to get an idea is revenue per employee, right? They can just kind of tell you a few things. Um, are they are they doing more with less or less with more? If you look at Amazon from back in 2019, from their 10K, they say they employed approximately 798,000 full-time and part-time employees. And that was as of the end of 2019. Revenue that year, $281 billion. And so, they were $352,000 revenue per employee. Now, you fast forward to today, at the end of this year, at the end of 2022, they employed 1.5 million people, actually 1,541,000 full-time and part-time employees. Now, revenue uh, took off as well, $514 billion for the year. Uh, but but ultimately, what that translates to is three hundred thirty four thousand dollars revenue per employee. So so it's less, right? And and so that's just a metric that companies want to keep an eye on. Ideally, you want to see revenue per employee growing. That tells you that you're you're doing more with less in 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 some cases. And so maybe that's one thing they'll continue to keep an eye on. But but I just think it stood out when you look at Amazon's employee base now versus then. I mean, one million five hundred forty one thousand full and part time employees versus. 798,000 just uh, essentially three years ago. I mean, we can see how quickly that employee base grew. The business is growing as well, just just not quite as quickly. And they want to try to reverse that trend. Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Have the events in the banking industry over the past two weeks done anything to change the definition of money? And if so, does that even matter? Jacob Goldstein is the author of the book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Goldstein to talk about bank runs, why they happen, and how businesses could prepare for them. Right now, the Fed can just digitally send billions of dollars to banks wherever it wants. We're not in the gold standard days. Why, why do we have bank runs? Well, we have bank runs because not all of the deposits in American banks are insured or guaranteed, right? Like, and namely, this month, that's important because at, say, Silicon Valley Bank, the vast majority of the deposits were not insured, right? So, the Fed has the ability to save depositors at any bank it wants, has infinite dollars. The question is, when is it appropriate or desirable for the Fed to do that, right? And the people last week, seems like a long time ago, but it was just last week, at Silicon Valley Bank who had their uninsured deposits knew that their deposits were uninsured, knew that under the law, if Silicon Valley Bank didn't have their money, the government was not on the hook to make them the depositors whole. So it was rational for them to run on the bank. And I mean, you've studied the history of bank runs. I think there's some criticism that um, those deposits shouldn't be backstopped, or which banks' deposits do get backstopped and which don't by, by the FDIC. What does it look like when there's a bank run and the deposits are not backstopped? I mean, it looks like your classic timeless bank run, right? Like, you know, deposit insurance is pretty new. You know, we've had banks for many hundreds of years. In this country, we didn't have widespread deposit insurance until the 1930s, right? Before that time, it was routine for 
people who got nervous about their bank to go take their money out for for good reason, right? The guys who won the Nobel Prize in economics last year sort of built this formal mathematical model showing why it's rational for you to run on the bank if you're worried about the bank because the bank doesn't have enough money to give all the depositors their money back. So if you're worried that there's going to be a run, you should run first. You should beat all the chumps so you can get your money before the bank runs out, right? And that's exactly what we saw uh, at at Silicon Valley Bank last week. But I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to what you've written in Money about the Wildcat banking era, which like, or if you don't backstop deposits, essentially your two options are doing what the the 14th century government of Venice, Italy did, which was behead bankers who aren't able to backstop deposits, or you've you essentially just create a system where there's so many banks creating so much money that you have kind of chaos all the time. I mean, yes-ish, right? So th- there there are trade-offs all the way down here, right? Um Technically, a bank deposit is a loan to the bank, right? And the case against deposit insurance is you want depositors, people lending money to the bank, to care how safe the bank is. You want them to look at the bank and say, oh, this bank is super sketchy. I'm not going to put my deposits there because that creates a market force to cause banks to take fewer risks, right? Like it's regulation by market forces. Now we've decided that normal people should get to have checking accounts without worrying about that. Some guy who has $1000 in the checking account or $5000 in their checking account to pay their mortgage and buy food isn't on the hook to regulate their bank. But we've decided that if you have more than $250,000 in the bank, you should be sophisticated enough to care about your bank's risks to be aware that Silicon Valley Bank is insolvent because of this, you know, bet on long bonds that they made. Now, I think the big problem right now is the government is de facto giving insurance to all depositors. I don't think that's a problem on its own, but the problem is the government is pretending that it's not providing that insurance, right? Like officially, it's still the case that you only get FDIC government insurance on $250,000 worth of deposits. But in the 2008 crisis, and then again just now, the government's like, okay, actually, everybody's deposits are guaranteed. And it's like if, you know, people's houses kept burning down and they didn't have fire insurance and everybody felt bad for them. And the government's like, okay, you didn't have insurance, but we're going to pay for you to rebuild your house because we feel bad for you. Like, that's a dumb way to run an insurance market, right? So it, it seems like the rational thing is, the government can no longer credibly claim that deposits bigger than $250,000 don't have tacit insurance because it clearly do. So the government should like own that, right? And say, okay, some amount of bigger deposits or business deposits up to whatever, a million dollars or something are insured and we will charge, you know, the FDIC is an insurance fund. We will charge for that because right now the government is providing free insurance. That doesn't make sense. The other thing that I've noticed too is there's a criticism that Banking regulators, government officials are just changing the rules on the fly. And that seems to be the one consistency throughout pretty much all banking crises with uh, 2008. Hey, we're going to go behind the Go behind the the wall to to orchestrate these deals with Bear Stearns in the Great Depression with FDR essentially saying, We have enough gold to back up deposits. Don't ask me any more questions. Yes. And then it turned out that he, you know, changed the dollar value of gold, right? I agree. I mean, there's one particularly sort of, I don't know, 
grating thing about, about the recent set of circumstances, and that is, in 2018, if you go back to 2018, there was a change in banking regulations, a change in the regulations put in place after the financial crisis, where the threshold for being a systemically important bank was lowered. Right? It had been, if you have $50 billion in assets or more, you're automatically considered systemically important, meaning, uh, if you fail, it could have knock-on effects in the broader economy, which is what regulators care about. Right? One bank blowing up doesn't matter, but a bank blowing up and taking down a bunch of the economy, that's bad. So, they, they uh, raised that threshold from $50 billion to $250 billion. Silicon Valley Bank is, is in the middle there, right? Silicon Valley Bank was bigger than $50 billion, smaller than $250, so not systemically important under the new rules. And then over the weekend, the rationale the federal government gave for making depositors whole was, Actually, it is systemically important. We need to do this because if we don't, there might be a broader banking crisis. And so, like to your point of sort of this ad hoc regulation, that one is particularly frustrating because it is the exact opposite of what how the law changed just a few years ago. I mean, the flip side is a banking crisis is very bad, and banks, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, the stock is going to go to zero, right? The bondholders are going to lose most of their money. The people running the bank are losing their jobs. So, like. It's not like there is no accountability there. It would be better not to have a banking crisis than to have a banking crisis. So it's it's hard. Like banks are inherently fragile. Even good banks can blow up. You don't want the failure of a bad bank to take down perfectly sound banks. So it's hard. It's a hard problem. And the thing that I find frustrating is, you know, I, I would think back, let's say three or five years ago, I don't think I would have predicted the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. And I don't think that I actually don't think that most reasonable people would. I think that's a, I think it's hindsight quarterbacking to say I saw this particular bank failure coming. Now, what is entirely predictable though is that there will be bank runs. There always have been bank runs and there always will be bank runs, but th- there there is a dynamic between not putting everything in one basket and also, you know, if to your earlier point, if you're a business with 1000 or let's say 10 million dollars in cash, you would need to use 40 different banks to have all of that insured and that's that's I think that's kind of unreasonable for most businesses to do. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I was surprised at how at that at the fact that I guess it was more than ninety percent of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were uh, uninsured. You know, were were in very large accounts. I mean, there are other things you can do with cash. You know, uh, if you're a business, you can buy T bills, right? You can buy Treasury money market mutual funds. Now you can't like you know. If you have, if you need millions of dollars to make payroll every two weeks, that gets more complicated, right? But I was surprised by that fact, and clearly, lots of businesses have lots of money in uninsured bank accounts, and they are at this point. I think within their, at this point, I think it's reasonable to to feel like those accounts have this sort of tacit backing of the government, even if the government doesn't come out and say so. And that it's that tacit backing that seems suboptimal to me. I feel like there's a it's weird to me that more people aren't talking about that 
Like the only person I've heard talking about it, strangely, is Barney Frank, who was, you know, who wrote Dodd Frank, the the banking reform that came out of the 2008 crisis, and then was on the board of Signature Bank, the sort of other lesser discussed bank that got shut down last weekend. They were uh, a big banker to the crypto industry, and and they also got shut down, and their depositors were made whole. So Barney Frank was like, "Hey, businesses need deposit insurance on on higher amounts." To me, that seems like an obvious conclusion from from this, and. I, Maybe the reason people aren't talking about it is because there's not like an obvious villain there. I feel like what people want when a bank fails is a villain. And it's not really like talking about insurance is kind of boring. Maybe that's why nobody's talking about it. It's it's hard to get the, the people off their seats for insurance regulation. Yes. <laughs> Brandon Greeley wrote an op-ed in the, the Financial Times. It's titled, SVP Failure Raises a Question, Who Gets to Create Dollars? And uh, one of the points that he raises is that there is a decision to backstop all of these the, the deposits that def, it, it, that expands the definition of a dollar you've written about how the definition of a, the dollar has pretty much consistently expanded and changed throughout all of human history does it matter that the definition of a dollar is expanding or is that just a natural course of of economic life Oh, it does matter. It does matter. And just to just to pause and sort of talk through what that means for a sec. I mean, if you go back a hundred years, right? A hundred years ago, the U.S. was on the gold standard. So the definition of a dollar then was basically a certain amount of gold, right? It was that I think it was twenty-two dollars and change, or maybe twenty dollars and change, got you an ounce of gold, right? So people thought of that as the meaning of the dollar, right? So the fundamental thing at that point that was that was a dollar was basically that much gold. Then the next step was a, a banknote, a piece of paper, right? Now, a hundred years ago we had the Fed. So it was a piece of paper, but people still thought of the paper as basically a claim check for the gold. And then the next thing that was kind of like a dollar but a little less was a dollar in the bank, right? Because a hundred years ago you knew that your dollar in the bank was a loan to the bank. And if the bank went bust, you wouldn't get it back, right? As of a week ago, a dollar in an insured bank account was more sound, was a more real dollar than a dollar in an uninsured bank account, right? A dollar in an uninsured bank account is a loan to the bank that you might not get back, right? And so what we've seen, I think, over over the past week is the government saying, okay, those dollars in your bank account, in your million dollar checking account, those are actually more solid dollars than than we said before. Those are those are real dollars. Wink, right? So so what it means is basically the government is backing supporting banks more now than the government was a week ago. And that has been the direction of things, right? More government backing for banks. And like that's okay. I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but like Banks are in this public-private partnership with the government. Banks are in the business of creating money, and they're able to do that because of the set of government guarantees that they get. And in exchange for that, they are subject to strict regulation, and they have to pay for deposit insurance. And so, we just need to make sure that those things seem like they're in balance. The more the government is guaranteeing the banks, the more the banks should be subject to regulation and deposit insurance. Jacob Goldstein. He's the host of What's Your Problem? He has an interview out with Glenn Kelman, the CEO of Redfin. He's also the author of Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, thanks. It was a delight to talk to you. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about. 
and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.